welcome to the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts, which are now entering their fourth year of broadcast. Who would have thought that when Seth died in 2014, all these years later we would be making a podcast in his memory? It's a really exciting time for Charlotte and me. We've been recording 30 podcasts, one for each day in November, as part of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. Charlotte has been talking to all kinds of people involved with pancreatic cancer and over the next 30 days we will hear lots of personal stories. Stories of love, stories of commitment, stories of hope and sadly, as always with pancreatic cancer, stories of loss. Each story will help you understand the challenges of pancreatic cancer as well as the signs and symptoms and will help you to have conversations with people and ensure that they are aware of what to look out for. Join us each day for our Purple Rainbow podcast. If you miss any of the episodes, you can catch up by visiting www.purplerainbow.co.uk where all of the podcasts will be stored for you to listen to at your leisure. Follow us on your podcast channel, like and share, And join us for an interesting month with lots of stories of love and hope. Welcome to today's episode of Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts, one of 30 episodes you'll be getting across November 2021 for Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. I'm Charlotte and today I'm talking to Anne-Marie Holder. Anne-Marie is a GP and also Deputy Medical Director of NHS England Improvement. We talk about her experiences of pancreatic cancer both within her family many years ago and a close friend much more recently. Now, I just want to warn you that we do talk about the death of her family friend in quite a bit of detail. So if that's something you're not ready to hear, please, please press stop now and come back tomorrow for another episode. I had two encounters, I suppose, with pancreatic cancer when I was very young. I remember our neighbour, I must have been probably about seven or eight or something like that. Our neighbour, who was a, a doctor, who was a cardiologist, um, literally went downhill and died within a number of days. And it was a real shock to my parents, who were close friends of his. Obviously, he was our neighbour. Uh, and also, you know, for me as a child, you know, I couldn't understand it. One day he was there and the next day he was gone. And I do remember him being yellow obviously with the jaundice um, and my, my, my mother sort of um, who always had a high anxiety around illness and disease and especially cancer as well. Um, she, she really upset her. She was, she was very, very traumatized by it. Um, and then sadly her mother, so my grandmother um, had pretty much the same sort of um, demise a few years later when I was about 11. And again, I always remember, um, you know, how quickly it, it all happened. She was um, not unwell, not unwell at all. She just literally, you know, woke up one morning and, and was jaundiced, went along presumably in those days to see her GP who sent her for some tests. 
Uh, and I know that she went into hospital for what was called in those days an exploratory operation, although we wouldn't do things like that these days. You'd have a scan or something like that. And um, I can remember people talking in the family and, and it was said, oh, they opened her up and she was riddled with cancer. And so they closed her up and that was it. And and then, you know, we went to visit her in hospital and she was still extremely jaundiced, which was very frightening for me because um, I didn't really understand it as an 11-year-old child. Uh, and then literally within, I think, the end of that week, she, she died. And it had a profound effect on my mother, actually, um, because having then seen two people die so rapidly from it, she held a great fear of cancer and especially of cancer of the pancreas for the rest of her life. And I think it probably contributed to her anxiety. She was always very anxious and um, it was always her greatest fear, Charlotte. You know, she she was a, a high user of um, uh, services, shall we say, um, any sort of abdominal pain, it freaked her out. She thought she was, she'd got cancer. And, and so she, she went in the opposite direction, really. So she was presenting all the time with all sorts of symptoms, thinking that she'd got this. And I remember when she hit the same age as my grandmother had died, which was around about 72, which is no great age, really, by today's standards, she was convinced that this was it. She was going to die in her 72nd year. And so any abdominal symptom of any kind she was straight up to the doctor and um you know colonoscopies and scans and etc you know she had um a myriad of those throughout her life and and now looking back on it you know i think yes you know she had this heightened anxiety it was awful because really what she what she was living with was the fear of that something like that happening to her and, and that had um that has occurred because of the trauma that she'd been through. And actually, as it happened, she didn't get cancer. She died of dementia. Um, and uh, it's so sad, really, because she, she spent all of her life in fear of dying when she didn't need to. And I think that's something that people don't necessarily always take into account as well. It's, you know, how a diagnosis affects the rest of the family and obviously it affects lots and lots of different people obviously it's the per the patient and then the patient's family and then it's that long-term effect as well like your mum lived most of her life essentially in fear in fear that- she did yeah yeah i think it's it's very scary isn't it? it's almost like seeing someone die in front of you because they are they do go downhill so so rapidly in the main you know very very unusual for people to survive beyond a certain number of um, months let alone years and we talk about your gran who was diagnosed and died what 40 odd years ago is that Mm, nearly 50 years ago yeah and what differences have you seen or you know you mentioned about you know wouldn't have an exploratory operation these days you wouldn't open someone up have a look close them up and leave them to the side but what differences do you think there have been or have been made in in the treatment of pancreatic cancer between then and now not a lot really i think that for those patients who are able and fit enough to undergo surgery and where it is deemed to be um 
something that will have a good outcome, there is that option. You can do, I think you can do a Whipples, um, which is a very extensive, um, almost like a clearance of the abdominal contents and, and really sort of leave behind as little as possible. So you can do that. But you need to be in a good state of health to endure something like that. So it's very difficult to get the right sort of patient who presents early enough. And, and there's the challenge. So in reality, probably very little has changed. We still sadly see people um, presenting with symptoms that are vague. That's the other thing, because it's often quite difficult to you know, sort out that you know what what is important the wood from the trees if you like as a gp because if we if we over investigate it can cause anxiety and and that isn't good so is a balance to be struck so yeah i mean there's no specific test at the moment although i think there is this um uh blood test isn't there this this 50 cancer blood test which i believe does include pancreatic cancer i think so, you know, that's being tested and tried at the moment, isn't it? Um, so the outcome from that obviously will be um, important and hopefully inform in um, healthcare going forwards. But, you know, we need an earlier diagnosis. We need to know when the, the cancer is small enough to be resected or small enough to actually um, respond to chemotherapy. And, and that's the trouble. We're still seeing people present very late and also in poor state of health when they're probably too ill. And that's exactly what happened to my friend, who you probably, you know, we're, we're going to come on to. Um, so I don't know whether, you know, you yeah. want me to talk about him now. Please because, do. Yeah. you know, he, here is a, another story very similar 50 years later with, again, a very similar outcome. So this was a friend of ours who um, we got to know through, uh, rugby actually so his son used to play rugby with my son and uh, we found out that he was extremely gifted in all sorts of things around the house so this is called Howard he used to be around our house all the time as you can see from the beams I know you can't see it because it's voice recording but I live in a very old property and everything is always going wrong with this house so it was always called Howard and he'd come around and say, oh, God, what's your dad done now to my son, Archie? Because, you know, usually my husband had tried to fix something and it hadn't gone very well. So How Howard was great. You know, he, he would literally um, be round here the same day um, if we needed him. And uh, it was one day my husband was outside sawing some logs and um, he, he'd literally um, sort of come round and, and he was trying to attract my husband's attention and eventually my husband turned off the saw because he heard him and, and said oh hello Howard you know and he, he came in I didn't know this but I came downstairs and I saw them both sitting in the kitchen looking really really solemn and uh, my husband said um come and have a, come and have a seat you need you need to talk to Howard with me and I said oh god what's happened and he and he he said Howard can I can I show Anne-Marie what you've just shown me and he said oh god yeah absolutely Howard was you know call a spade a spade he was very open very um down to earth um certainly you know he he didn't want anyone sugarcoating anything and he said no that's, that's fine so apparently he had um had a bit of abdominal pain two weeks before nothing that he really thought was anything much you know he thought he'd just eaten something a bit off 
Um, it was during COVID. Uh, so he, again, had thought, well, you know, I'll see how it goes. I won't, I won't bother my GP. And then I think it had got to the stage where it was really bad. It was keeping him awake at night. Um, but otherwise he was very fit. He was, he, he was an open water swimmer. He was in his, um, I think early or mid fifties, but you know, not overweight, didn't smoke, barely drank. So, you know, really fit guy. Um, and, uh, in the end he rang up his GP and his GP talked to him over the phone and said, well, I think we just sent you for some blood tests, shall we? Um, blood tests apparently showed some liver enzyme abnormalities. So this suggested his liver wasn't functioning properly, which was not expected. Um, and so he said, I think I'm going to get you to have some investigations. And Howard was initially like, oh, come on, you know, it's fine. See if it... No, no, I think you should. So there's a lot of encouragement there. He did eventually go. Um, and I think he had a scan um, because there's very little you could do during COVID. And uh, he had in his hand a letter from the consultant, which basically told him he was terminal. What they'd seen on the scan was that he had widespread pancreatic metastasis. Um, it looked like there was something in his pancreas, but he also had widespread metastasis um, right throughout his abdomen and um, also um, in his liver, which is obviously the reason why his liver enzymes were abnormal. Um, and uh, he sat there and he said, so what are my options? <laughs> you know, that's just so hard to have that conversation with somebody. Um, and of course, he needed to know because he couldn't sit down and talk to his GP because it was COVID and it, it wasn't something that was available really. Um, he had his DNAR done over the phone by his GP. So his do not resuscitate was done over the phone. Um, but yeah, so, so essentially what happened then was we, we sort of said, well, look, Howard, we both looked at each other and said, do you really want to know? And he said, yes, I do. I want to know. And so we told him, we said, you won't be alive for Christmas. And and little did we know, it would be a lot quicker than that. So this was about May time last year, and I think he, he was dead within two weeks. And it was awful. It was an awful, awful, awful death. You know, I, I, it makes me feel really upset now because we couldn't do anything to help either. We went round to his house um where his wife and family were on several occasions and we could just see him, you know, getting worse before our eyes, really. And one of the problems that he had was that he must have had some infiltration into his stomach and it presumably had, um, it, it had gone through to one of his um, major blood vessels, um, eroded one of his major blood vessels and he was vomiting a lot of blood um, and he lit literally he was filling up with blood in his stomach and just vomiting it and and uh, he 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 was still laughing though I mean I, I went over to give him a kiss bent down and hit him in the face with my handbag and he said oh my god you stop hitting me with your handbag you know and he was he was trying trying to always trying to sort of make a joke out of everything so yeah that was absolutely awful and I think you know Charlotte you, you you sort of think when it happens to, some, happens to someone that's your age as well, it, it, it's also very, um, it's very scary. Um, and it, you know, it makes you 
suddenly realise how fragile life is. Do you think you felt a little extra responsibility because you are a GP and obviously he came to you for that extra help, that extra advice? Do you think as well as that friendship because you want to support your friend, you kind of have a bit of an extra role? I don't want to say burden because it sounds like it's something that's not, not, but it's that extra weight that you think he's come to me because he knows that I'll get, he'll get the truth. And also you've then got to deliver that, that truth. Yeah, I think I think we you always feel that as a doctor, you always you always sort of wear two hats really, and you have to be careful because you can't treat and you shouldn't ever treat your friends or your family, but you you do feel that you want to try and maybe navigate healthcare services and make things easier for them, um, and we couldn't do that. I think that's what was so frustrating uh, because now healthcare services are very corporate um unless unless you literally have um the ability to ring up and talk to a gp gp to gp even then it's still you know very difficult you still have to go through all the same process that everybody else has to do and you can't shortcut things and i think that was the frustrating thing we we wanted to help and shortcut all of that for him and his wife and we couldn't has it given you a, not that you don't have an understanding of what it's like for for your patients, but does it give you that extra understanding or that extra depth of that frustration? That I think some people do get. And- oh God, yeah, I've, I I I absolutely feel that. I, I feel that all the time. I feel that for every single service. I mean, I I, I have going off on a different subject. You know, I have um, relatives, very close relatives. My one of my sons who has a lot of mental health issues and I know how absolutely impossible it is to say get through to a crisis team Um, and I know what it's like to try and access other services from being say pregnant myself and yeah I I think if you could design a service that makes it as hard as possible uh, it's perfect for that there's so many barriers and not necessarily because people have tried to do that. It's just the nature of it. And and there's so many silos. People work in their own silo. And so, therefore, you've got this um, transition problem between whether it be primary care, secondary care, or, or, say, between children and adults, you know, all of those sort of transitions. It's just everything's put in the way to make it more difficult. It feels like that anyway sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of time, a lot of love and respect for everyone who works within the NHS, but it is a beast of of an organisation, isn't it? Let's be honest. As a GP, what are you looking out for when people come to you? Because I'm guessing, you know, pancreatic cancer is probably not necessarily always at the front of your mind, because it can't be. As a GP, you've got to know pretty much every single thing out there. And I would hate to be a GP because you've got to be across so much. But what are the kind of the warning signs that you are particularly keen? So I think probably the the red flags for me, um, and not this is not necessarily and always for pancreatic cancer because it could be any sort of upper GI cancer, um, weight loss um, where someone hasn't tried to lose weight. So unexplained weight loss, um, that's definitely a red flag. Um, problems with eating. Um, not so much swallowing, obviously that's a red flag for esophageal cancer, but difficulty with um, eating, loss of appetite, 
uh, abdominal pain, especially in the upper and middle part of the tummy or abdomen, where it's radiating through to the back. So where people are saying, I've got a lot of pain in the middle of my tummy and it, it feels like it's going through to my back, that's definitely a red flag. Um, obviously, unexplained jaundice or any jaundice, really, I think, to be on the safe side. Um, and then um, new onset diabetes in, in uh, you know, in any patient, especially if they've got a normal body mass index. So, yes, we've got a lot of diabetics and we do diagnose a lot of new diabetes. Um, and I think if you've got somebody who has a body mass index that reflects that risk, then you're probably going to be assured at least a little bit that it's likely to be due to that but where you've got somebody who's otherwise slim and they suddenly start developing diabetes then you've got to think well that's very odd so I think that needs investigation and then although I don't think it's been proven that there's any genetic um, uh, uh, genetic relationship I think where there is anxiety of the patient due to that you know maybe they've got some non-specific symptoms and they say you know my father died of pancreatic cancer or my mother or whatever and I think any anxiety that the patient has along with with non-specific vague symptoms I would also think about investigating. And if people are worried about bothering their GP, I know you know the the narrative has changed a lot over the last eighteen months. Obviously, first it was you know with the pandemic and lockdown, and stay away, stay away, and now people are like you know the narrative is going. No, you go see your GP if you're worried. What what would your message be to people if they have any concerns, whatever? Is it is it okay to pick up the phone and book an appointment? If you can, yes, <laughs> yes, can. yeah. I think you've got to and and. I, th- I think you perhaps need to, I won't say embellish, but, you know, don't, you, you, need, you need to give your symptoms to the, to the receptionist because you, most, most practices are operating um, a triage system and uh, you've, you've got to make sure that you put your point across. So, yes, you know, I say to the receptionist, I'm really worried. I've had this, this and this and I need to speak to a doctor so that's the thing is you've really got to get in there and even if you don't get a face-to-face appointment at least get a telephone consultation and have a word with your GP definitely or or, or you know some of these practices are very um, innovative they may have advanced practice, practice nurses uh, or they may even have um, physicians associates speak speak to a healthcare professional because at least you get in the door even if it's not physical, it's a virtual door, you get in to speak to somebody and they will then escalate it or speak to an, a doctor if need be. So I think if you're worried, pick up the phone. It's far better, yeah. And is it okay? Because, again, it's a sort of mixed messages on this. Is it okay if if you've... I'm terrible for, looking, for diagnosing myself via Google. Mm. You know, Dr. Google comes out and tells me all sorts of things and then I ignore it and go, well, you're wrong because it's Google. <laughs> you know, I'm clearly making it up. But if, you know, if if you have done the thing where you've just typed in your symptoms and got that Dr. Google diagnosis, is it okay to mention that to the doctor? Or Because I always think that maybe they're going to laugh at me and go, no, no, I'm the expert. I'm, I'm the one that should be telling you all this. Don't go on the internet. No, I don't think so. I don't think you need to justify why you're calling your doctor I don't think you need to necessarily say I put my symptoms into Google and it told me this and therefore I'm here. You can do and and you shouldn't feel you can't do that. But 
if you're if you're worried about anything, that's that's what primary care is there for. You should speak to your doctor about it. You don't have to justify it. You don't have to justify it by saying, I put my symptoms into Google and it said I had to come and see you. Just go, you know, say I've got this symptom. I don't know what it is. I'm worried. Thank you so much to Anne-Marie for speaking with me and sharing her experiences. Please, please share this podcast. You can leave us a review and a rating. We're here every day in November, remember, raising awareness of pancreatic cancer. You can find out more at purplerainbow.co.uk. And I will be back tomorrow with another episode.